Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 42, where we're traveling back to 1984 and the 38th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Bernard Rands, for his work for tenor and orchestra, Canti del Sole. But before we get there, we've had a little bit of a hiatus, about a month between our last episode and now, and we just want to let you know that we've been busy yes. during that month. We went to the Society for American Music and actually presented a paper based on this Pulitzer Prize winning podcast. Well, not winning podcast, but <laughs> we can wish Pulitzer board. Yeah. But it is a, uh, a thing about um, the 1965 controversy surrounding our good friend Duke Ellington not getting the Pulitzer. And we had a wonderful time at the Society for American Music. We did. It was really fun. We were in Minneapolis and presenting at a hotel uh, and had a really good panel. Actually, our whole session was very interesting. And then our paper was last on the session, and Andrew was actually chair, which was kind of fun. Uh, so he got to got to do dual duty. Uh, but we had a full house and some nice technology that we put into it. We had maps of Pulitzer Prize winners before the pivot, what we're calling, from 1965, and then after, sort of where they were geographically. We talked about uh, some of the controversies, some of the different stylistic changes that happened, and... Uh, it had really lively conversation with people. So. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So if you're a new listener joining us from the Society for American Music Conference, welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers. Uh, and today, as we mentioned, we're talking about Bernard Rands. So Dave, what do you know before now about Bernard Rands? Well, before now, I didn't know anything except for his famous spouse. True, uh, yes. Because I grew up in the Chicago area and uh, my uh, would come back and uh, his wife, Augusta Reed Thomas, was the composer in residence of the Chicago Symphony for many, many years and taught at Northwestern. So I knew of her. Now she's at University of Chicago. So I knew that she was married to this com- other composer named Rands, and then we found but don't out. Don't you love that, that you knew the female composer? And you're yes. Like, and she happens to have a husband who also composes. And who won a Pulitzer won Prize. Won a Pulitzer, but... Exactly. <laughs> so I hadn't heard a note of his music until now, and so this is actually all pretty new to me. So how about you? Uh, pretty much about the same. Yeah. I uh, was not very familiar with his music either. Um, I knew of Augusta Reed Thomas <laughs> as well before I knew of Bernard Rands. So it's been interesting to kind of dive into this aspect. Um, you know, we sometimes come across these composers that we know the names, we just haven't experienced the music. And so it's always fun to get to dive into the music and learn a little bit about that composer, who they are. So maybe that's where we should turn and start to tell the story. <laughs> Telling the story. Well, Bernard Rands is an interesting figure in our Pulitzer Prize history because I think he might be the second foreign-born. Minotti is the Minotti. only other one. Yeah, yeah. So he was actually born in Sheffield, England, and then went to the University of Wales in Bangor. So he spent a lot of time and learned uh, about how to speak Welsh too. Uh, came to the U.S. in 1975 and became an American in 1983. Just in time. Just in time to <laughs> sneak in and win the Pulitzer, exactly. Uh, but very interesting background, real hard scrabble, mm-hmm. kind of poor upbringing, uh, but his father was a janitor. Uh, but very one of those uh, blue-collar workers who really worked hard to try to educate himself and learn a lot. So and self-educated, read, so, th- read through the library. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, pass that on to your children because you learn by example. Exactly, exactly. So uh, Bernard grew up around this kind of environment of uh, – literature, reading, education, and self-improvement. So then he started to get interested in music, and this is where we have sort of a vision of the future coming. Yeah, in many ways, this is a familiar story now to Pulitzer. It's from the past couple of winners, really since the late 70s. We've seen these winners who start out like Bernard Rands and are very interested in kind of the serial or the atonal school and then move into a different direction. But his, instead of being interested in the American school, is the continental European. So he goes to all the big names in Europe. Oh, Darmstadt. Darmstadt, Donaschingen, Graz. I mean, he goes to all the places yeah. that are going to give you that kind of schooling, bathing, swimming <laughs> in the atonal experience. Uh, but he said that, you know, he was listening to Stockhausen and uh, Boulez, but he thought they were coming too much from Adorno. He really liked the Italians, mm -hmm. which is a different kind of spin on it, I think. So you get Dalla Piccola, who I know you love, <laughs> yes. uh, Luciano Berrio, Bruno Maderna, Luigi Nono, all of these still very influential at places like Darmstadt composers. But uh, as he said, uh, he appreciated them because he said, uh, can I use the term Italian lyricism <laughs> in an uh, interview that he gave? And, and I think that's true. There is more of a lyricism uh, amongst those composers. Mm -hmm. So he comes to the United States and... Very quickly, I mean, he's in interviews said that his friends back in uh, Europe say you come to the United States and you lose your edge yep. and you become a tonalist. But, I mean, he comes in 1975 at the time in which this kind of new or neo-romanticism is really kind of bubbling up. And so we've seen this with people like, you know, Druckmann and mm -hmm. Windows winning or Schwantner. You know, we've seen several of these composers who are kind of with the same story of I used to be kind of atonal and now I'm sh shifting gears and being kind of uh, romantic. Uh, in my music. And so that's kind of where his own trajectory as a composer went. But what's interesting is I, th I feel like it's tempered a little bit because he taught at our favorite university, Harvard, for many years. And of course, who are some of the Harvard composers? Kirchner, uh, Davidovsky, mm -hmm. some, you know, pretty uh, Warren, I mean, some kind of tough, tough serial composers and academic, uh, more academically inclined composers. So I do think that was also that maybe spoke to some of his Boulez and Dalla Piccola, Stockhausen, that Darmstadt aesthetic as well is still very much in the music, I think. Oh, it is. And, and he even rejects this idea that he's sold out when he oh, came yeah, to the United right. States. That's right. uh, he said uh, in an interview with our good friend Bruce Duffy, uh, he said, I can write Canti d'Amore, so one of the song cycles based off the uh, piece that won the Pulitzer. He said, why shouldn't I? Therefore, my wife. Why should I not make a love song for my wife of all people? I don't think one has to feel obliged to the resonances of the second Viennese school in order to be able to do that. These two, the tonal and non-tonal, are interacting all the time, whether it's a harmony or a rhythmic cell, a timbre or a gesture. Music has always been that way. Otherwise, we would have used up its resources a long time ago. Right. Which I think is, is actually pretty accurate. And what we see of this kind of neo-romanticism that's happening during this time period. Very much in this generation. Uh, I was a little surprised you posted a quote or you, in our, our notes, show notes here. Uh, yet he, at the same time, he has a great love for earlier music and keeps his ear attuned to music of other genres as well. At one point in our talk, he bought, brought up the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, I put that in there because uh, I, I knew <laughs> as soon as I wrote the Beatles that like fireworks would go <laughs> off over your head and you would get so excited and I knew it would come up when we talked. I, <laughs> you know me too well. Yes, yeah, so I, I was surprised. I'd like to know what he thought of 
Magical Mystery Tour because I don't hear it much in this piece, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, more power to him for listening to the Beatles, especially uh, sometimes overlooked Magical Mystery Tour. So right. kind of interesting. But uh, anyway. I think the other thing that we have to talk about just to, yeah. uh, to kind of tell the story, and this will get us behind the notes, is the concert on which this piece premiered. Because it's part of a big series, a very important series in uh, 1983 called Horizons 83, since 1968, A New Romanticism, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> which is, you know, a great kind of question mark there at the end. Yeah. Uh, but the whole thing put together by Jacob Druckmann. Yes. Former Pulitzer winner, writer of Windows, very much in this kind of let's bring back romantic gestures into our music. But if you remember when we talked about Windows, that it's kind of multi-gestural. There are moments yeah. that are very tonal, moments that are not. So it's not this sense of we're rewriting Brahms. That's not what they're interested in. And that the Horizons 83 is one of these uh, enormously successful. In fact, the, the story t goes that at the first concert, and this was not the first concert, um, but at the first concert, people were literally lined up around the, the block to get in. Hmm. And they ended up holding the downbeat for 20 minutes to try to get everyone in because they had no idea it was going to be such a huge success. Wow. Basically, the six concerts of the festival, if you average out all the tickets, they were selling 1,800 tickets for per a concert, which is an enormous number. Especially for new music. Especially for all new music. So what, yeah, what message do you take away from that now? In, I mean, this was 1983 when that was happening. So could something like that work in 2023? No. No. <laughs> well, I think that we have a different situation. So one, I think their marketing was really good. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, even that question mark, <laughs> a new romanticism, uh, brings in conversation. It creates conversation. So there's a really wonderful mm -hmm. article about this uh, festival by Will Robin that we'll be sure to put into our show notes that you can read if you're interested in it. Um, but that's one of the things that he says is that they had critics there. Like they, it, it was time to coincide with the annual meeting of the Music's Critics Association. Oh, perfect. Right, they did everything right. But also I think the culture was more uh, centralized in 1983 yeah. than it is in 2023. That's true. We didn't have YouTube or any of the right. internet or any of that stuff really to, to deal with. Well, maybe we should uh, go behind the notes of Canti del Sole. Behind the notes. Well, Canti del Sole is the second piece, and as Andrew mentioned earlier, there's a trilogy. And what's unusual about these pieces, they're uh, multilingual. And so you have Canti Lunatizzi, I don't speak Italian, but for Soprano 1980, which then was followed by this piece. And then the third one was Canti del Eclisse uh, for bass. And so as I mentioned, there's there these pieces, they're, they're movements that are songs based on multilingual poets mm -hmm. and all about the sun in this case. And it's the sun in all of its different forms, eclipse and sun going down, sunset, sunrise, kind of the power of the sun and the shape of the sun. So one of the interesting things to me about this is as soon as I read that description, because I did read about it before I listened to it. Sometimes I go the other way. But as soon as I did, I went, oh, I'm going to hear Luciano Berrio. Yeah, oh. That's exactly what I thought yeah. of. Because I'd already read that his background, right? That He, he studied with he him. He studied with him. He admired yeah. Berrio. And I think about something like Sinfonia, which will come up a little bit later. Mm -hmm. That to me, it sounded like, oh, he's trying to create his own Sinfonia. Because that is another piece that is based on kind of the tearing apart of texts, both musical and written, mm. and putting them back together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great connection. I think, yeah, well, uh, funny you mention that because, as you say, we'll come back to Sinfonia a little bit later. Uh, but we have poets that are 
quite well known and some other ones that are not. So poets you might know immediately would be Dylan Thomas or Arthur Rambeau, mm -hmm. D.H. Lawrence. Uh, but then there's also some Italian pieces, as we mentioned. Rand's is, was very is very fond of Italian poetry. So we have the first and the last uh, pieces in the song cycle are by Italian poets. Yeah, so you're jumping from language to language. You're mm -hmm. not going to know half the time what the text is about. And even when he does use uh, an English text, it's kind of taken apart. So again, in this interview that he gave, uh, interview that he gave with New Music Box, Frank uh, Oteri, he was discussing how he went about writing this. And he said, my intention was not just to paint pictures of the moon and the sun and so on. He wanted to get something deeper. He said, every poem I finally settled on, I dismantled complete destruction, if that's the right word, all of its <laughs> rhythms, all of its rhymes, all of its internal rhymes, and so on and so forth. And then I reassemble it because then what I'm dealing with is not just a poem about this by this author or that author. I'm dealing now with musical material, which is inherent in the poem itself. Mm. So then the question is, does the musical setting as detached, does it feel as kind of cut up and put together and spliced together as the poems do? Yeah, which I think... Uh, it actually does. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> so what I want to so. do is I'll play you. I have two sections. So this is about halfway through uh, the piece, just to kind of give you a sense. Um, I did cut a little bit, so you're going to have a jump of about 30 seconds. But these are two sections that are right next to each other, one text in English, one text in Italian. And I think you can kind of hear uh, the variety of what he's doing in here. If anything might wake him now, the kind old son will know. Think how it wakes the seeds, woke. Once the blaze of a cold star, our limbs so dear achieved, our sight full earth still warm, too hard to stir. Was it for this? The clay so the first one is, I mean, it seems like a nice little Italian, yeah. you know, boating song. Yeah, it's got yeah. a little lilt to it. And then 30 seconds later, you're suddenly in the second Viennese school and you have a little Voltsek there at the end. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. And I think that's, that's part and parcel of this time. So having the different styles juxtaposed against one another and constantly shifting in that kaleidoscopic view that we've seen in a lot of our recent winners. Especially those in this kind of neo-romantic neo idea. Yeah. It's very much uh, of the day that you would have this kind of uh, juxtaposition, both musically and textually. Yeah, exactly. Musically, uh, it's hard for me to figure out what's going on a lot of the times. I think it is kind of this mixture of things. Uh, you know, the uh, some of our previous composers, I think there have been more tonal influences. This one doesn't feel like there's much at all to me to latch onto. No, there isn't. And looking back at previous winners that have been in this kind of style, they've also had more of a through line. Yeah, I feel like yeah. there's there's not. I mean, clearly it's clearly crafted mm -hmm. and put together, and you can tell that Bernard Rands knows exactly what he's doing and where he wants it. Um, but as an audience member, it's much more 
I mean, you can say it's much more European because yeah. it kind of is in, in terms of the way that it's put together and thought through, uh, as opposed to let me take you by the hand and take you through this work. Uh, he's going to let you puzzle it out, which I mean, gives you new things every time you listen to it because you can mm-hmm. kind of puzzle out. Uh, you're not being just kind of let I think about the David Del Tredici, right? Where he oh, just yeah. takes you by the hand yeah. and he leads you very clearly <laughs> yes. where he's going to take you yeah. uh, through all of his Alice works, but you don't really get that here. No, not really at all. Uh, there are a few, in, in some of them, the songs are connected by instrumental sections, mm-hmm. which are kind of allow you to reflect a little bit, but the piece is really kind of in whole. There's not really pauses or breaks or anything. It's all connected. Right. I mean, it's a series of, of short, like yeah, minute, short minute, minute and a half, mm-hmm. uh, but they're played without, those songs are played without any kind of break. Right. So really it is one continuous piece uh, as opposed to all the individual little pieces that he's put through in terms of structuring the work. Mm-hmm. And we should mention the instrumentation too, because it's kind of mm-hmm. unique. You have the tenor solo, which was written for Paul Sperry, who I think he sang some Ives songs. That's maybe where I remember seeing his name. Uh, but we have flute with piccolo, alto flute, clarinet, trumpet, trombone, piano, lots of percussion and strings. Mm-hmm. So when I'm listening to the piece, I do hear the trombone and the trumpet a lot. Uh, and then these swells, there's lots of swells yeah. and kind of big, real loud crescendos and pullbacks to decrescendos and things. But it's sort of like a blur a lot of times when I'm listening to it. Well, but I think that's because the interest here is on the voice. And yeah. we can talk a little bit about Paul Sperry because, my goodness, what oh, an instrument wow. to, to yeah. do this. It's incredibly virtuosic. Just the switch that has to happen almost instantaneously between style. Yes. Some of those pitches, I think it sounds like he's just pulling them out of the air. I know, I know. It's completely, completely difficult. Very virtuosic um, and a really incredible performance. But the recording that I listened to is Paul Sperry recording yeah. it. And really sing- amazing. And singing in all the different languages, In too. all the different languages, yeah. Yeah, you've got French, English, Italian. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot to keep track of. So, well, shall we uh, go into the hit or miss and discuss the reception of Canti del Sole? Hit or miss? All right, well, we always start with the premiere and then what the jury said. Yeah, so we've already teased this out a little bit. So it was premiered on uh, June 8th, 1983, with the uh, Horizons concert that Andrew already mentioned. Jacob Druckmann was the artistic director. So the concert had William Schumann, former winner, our first winner, Mm -hmm. three colloquies for French horn and orchestra, and then this piece, and then after intermission was the Barrio Sinfonia. Funny how that works. Yeah. Uh, So that was. I wasn't the only one to see that connection. No, not at all. Not at all. Mm -mm. And so then the board, this is very interesting. So we've had some pretty notable. Mm board jury reports lately. So here we are. The music jury unanimously recommends that the 1984 Pulitzer Prize in music be given to Bernard Rands for Canti del Sole for tenor. The jury particularly admired the grand scope and range of this remarkable composition, its masterful technical realization, its extraordinarily sensitive word setting and ultimate dramatic impact. The second choice was Peter Lieberman's emphatically promising piano concerto and it received recognition for its grandeur ambition originality etc and then there's this weird note the jury feels incidentally that a public announcement may not necessarily be in the best interest of the second place winner 
Therefore, we would suggest that his name be used in official announcements only with his explicit approval. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so they're trying to figure out how to handle the new rule yeah. where they are announcing who are the runners up. Exactly. Exactly. Fascinating. And they're trying to figure out, you know, is it okay? But why would Lieberman not want people to know. know that he was a runner up for the Pulitzer Prize? I, think I don't that's know. A, you know. Not sure. Well, now, how about this jury? Well, take a guess who the chair is. Well, is it going to be Ellen Tafe's Willie? No. <laughs> <laughs> Someone intimately affiliated with this concert. Oh, is Druckmann on the Pulitzer? He was the chair. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Druck- Druckmann was the chair. Milton Babbitt was the second person. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And then... Uh, I've never heard of this person, but Martin Bernheimer, music critic of the L.A. Times. Okay, yeah. So, well, this I can see how this would be a compromise between Druckmann and Babbitt. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, that's very true. I could see that. So Druckmann's saying, look at all these great pieces that premiered the New Horizons Festival. Let's just use all of them. And Babbitt going, well, that's the one that I can appreciate. Yeah, because I think there's probably some serial structures or some yeah. sort of uh, oh, interesting. systematic stuff. But it just strikes me that... Jacob Druckmann. I mean, we've talked, and we talked at our mm-hmm. presentation even about the the hand of the former winners on their students. and just the insular nature. Mm-hmm. But this is to a new level. I this mean, is to a new level. Kind of being in charge of the festival and, and speaking about it, and and then someone in the festival winning the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, yes, exactly, exactly. So, well, Druckmann and Babbitt, and who was the other? Uh, Martin Bernheimer. Bernheimer. They may have really appreciated it, but the the critics were not quite so sure. <laughs> so, two reviews for you. First, of course, the New York Times. This yes. was premiered by the New York Philharmonic. This is uh, Ever Brostein, who said the world premiere of Bernard Ranz's Canti del Sole for tenor and orchestra was also a work that, at least for its aesthetic goals, looked back. In this case, to Mahler, Scriabin, and Debussy. A mm. continuous setting of poems about the sun by D.H. Lawrence, Rimbaud, Dylan Thomas, Baudelaire, and others, the work was meant to present a progression from dawn till dusk, winter to autumn, and evoke, with each shift in a poetic voice, a transition to a different instrumental one. Paul Sperry's impassioned articulation of the text matched by the orchestra's own coloristic precision, and while the work broke no new ground and provoked no new insights into light and sound, that was not presumably its intention. Words were sharply painted, the vision of a passing day effective. So, hmm. Is that damning with faint yeah, praise? Yeah, it's damning with faint praise. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Mark Laporta, who was reviewing the piece for notes, was a little bit more pointed <laughs> in saying, in Canti del Sole, Bernard Rands rides the middle road directly to a level-headed banality with Ooh. the sure hand of a driving ace. <laughs> Rarely have such limited aims been fulfilled with such consummate skill. The scoring is deft, literate, and shows breadth of experience. It's the work of a musician, but the absence of a single rough edge causes this cycle to roll right off the listener's back. Ooh, that's Oof. pretty harsh. I know. Oof. I would probably take issue with that last sentence, though. The uh, lack absence of a single rough edge. Uh, yeah, I was surprised it, at that too. Yeah. It, I thought it had it's some like all rough edges, very rough edges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to get your. What do you think about the, the Rothstein's comment about Mahler, Scriabin, and Debussy? I know it feels like he's misremembering. He's thinking about the <laughs> Sinfonia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's how he's remembering because the Sinfonia is famously built on the skeleton of Mahler. Yes. Uh, so that's kind of where I got that comment because I didn't hear that in listening no. to the the Rand's piece. No, not at all. Uh, apart, I guess if you're saying, well, it's a piece for voice and orchestra. Or, okay. okay. <laughs> I guess that's Mahler and Strauss. Yeah, Mahler. A lot of orchestral lead there. Right, 
And then the Debussy, maybe there's, I mean, some, there's the symbolism of Baudelaire and Rimbaud and maybe, I don't know, trying to find something here. But musically, I, yeah, I'm not hearing that as much. Well, we always like when we know the story of how the composer found out about the Pulitzer, so yeah. we know this. Uh, Bernard Rands has mentioned the story, and he said um, that the journalistic sponsor prize, they announced it on the radio. He wasn't listening to the radio. He had no knowledge of it. He said, I was in New York City working on another project, and I went back to where I was staying that evening, which happened to be Paul Sperry's apartment. Hey. And he said, Bernard, where have you been all day? <laughs> all the phones have been ringing off the hook. You better call home immediately because people are trying to find you all over the place. So that's when I found out about it. I was delighted and touched that anything I would do would gain the acknowledgement and recognition of my peers and my colleagues in the prof profession, and for that I'm grateful. But I'll make anything on music for competitions or prizes or anything else. Prizes are for boys. <laughs> it's heartwarming, but the next morning the page is still blank and you go back to work, perhaps a little buoyed for the moment. I enjoyed it, but I'm not pretending otherwise. It's lovely to have these things suddenly surprisingly placed in one's lap. Well, that's kind of along the same lines as some of our other winners. I mean, Ellen's will like have the same yeah, story. That exactly. You show up, it's like, oh, my answering machine is full yeah. of people calling to congratulate me. What are they congratulating me for? Yeah. And his approach to the Pulitzer, I think, is very similar to what we've heard from other composers, mm -hmm. which is nice to have. Not really going to change my career, except now that in New York Times obituary, we'll say I'm Pulitzer winner. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And your now you could say also your Wikipedia entry. That's, that's right. That's certainly mentioned very prominently. And always changed immediately. Like yeah. as soon as the <laughs> prize is announced, they always change that Wikipedia page. Exactly. All right, Dave, I think I know. <laughs> I think I know you too. But here. hit or miss here. Well, <clears throat> I really did give this one the old college try, but uh, I'm going to say this one's a super miss for me. A super miss? A super miss. Wow. Yeah, it was... I don't know. Honestly, I found it kind of grating and very hard to listen to mm -hmm. and just like, wow, this is just so far out from what I'm wanting to hear in this day and age. <laughs> it, maybe it's just a very dated relic of its time or mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I, I, I like the con a lot, like a lot of these winners. We may not like the pieces, but the concepts are interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing here. I think it's great to take something like The Sun that has been written about and thought about for millennia and that's a great idea but i think something in the musical execution just doesn't work for me yeah so how about you well it's not a super miss <laughs> no i'll say that i i appreciate the craft but it's one of those things that uh, for my ears when you reach a point where there's just so much difference going on that it tends to gray out mm. and it doesn't capture my attention because it's like okay it's just all constant change it's all constant difference uh, and it's kind of where I ended up at the end of the day listening to this piece. It's like, okay, I know there was a lot of difference, but I can't really kind of point out and say, I liked this part, this highlight. Um, so for me, that's why it's a miss. I wouldn't say it's a super miss. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm being harsh here. but <laughs> Well, but, but it was a miss for me as well. Yeah. Well, we'll try again next time with uh, our next winner here. So that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Bernard Rands. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episodes. And please, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It could be just something like, this is really interesting, we like this, anything, uh, to help people find the show. And finally, join us next episode when we discuss another Pulitzer Prize winning symphony. This one by Stephen Albert and one inspired by James Joyce called River Run. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.